We're in Luke chapter 22. Um, As we've seen, the last six chapters of the Gospel of Luke slow way down, and they just focus on the the final week of Jesus' life. And last week, as we began Luke chapter 22, we saw that this now is the bullseye of everything that Jesus came to do. Everything in his life and his ministry, his birth, his teachings, the miracles he performed, all for this moment in time. And as we continue today in Luke 22, they're still at the Last Supper, and there's a dynamic that's going on. It's all, you know, focusing. Jesus is taking the Passover meal, and he is really sort of changing the dynamic of the Passover meal. It was always intended to point to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, but but for the the Jews, it was sort of a a look back to God's faithfulness and his delivering them from their bondage in Egypt. But really, this was a, a greater picture of the Lord God delivering us from our bondage to sin. And, and so Jesus changing the meaning of Passover to, to show really its true meaning that, that the Messiah is going to come and he is going to be our Passover lamb, that, that unspotted, unblemished lamb that is sacrificed uh, for our sins to set us free um, from the bondage to, to Satan and sin and all. And so this is, this is what is going down here. But now today what happens in our text, the camera's going to zoom back. And uh, what's going to happen is, it, is that the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to us sort of a subplot to the story. Uh, really, it's all about the personal work of Jesus, but man, you got, you got men in the mix sort of marring the picture here, and so we, we sort of see this, this, this uh, subplot of, uh, of drama uh, today in our text. Um, we'll pick it up in verse 24. It says, now there was also a dispute among them. This is talking about among the disciples. So there's this dispute among the disciples as to which of them should be considered the greatest, right? These disciples, doggone it, man, they are constantly having drama and and issues and so on. And this issue of, hey, who's the greatest? This was a frequent topic of debate among these clowns. Like uh, we see it in Matthew chapter 20. We see it in Mark chapter 9. We see it in Luke chapter 9. And here now we see it again, Luke chapter 22. I like what one commentator said. He said, it's almost frightening to think that after Jesus poured three and a half years of his life into these men, after they saw the character of Jesus on display in almost every conceivable circumstance, it's inconceivable that now, at the final hours before his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion, that they argue about which of them is the greatest. And I agree with that. Like, we, we know, of course, from hindsight, the, the, how monumental this moment in human history is. And yet, these guys are preoccupied with which one of them is the greatest. And of course, Jesus could have stood up and said, shut up, all of you, I'm the greatest, and just put it to rest, you know. But he doesn't do that. Now, like I said, they argued about this frequently, but we don't know what set them off in particular this time, what got it going at this particular time. Um, One possibility is that Jesus had just prior to this said that one of them was going to betray him. And, and we left off with uh, verse 23. They began 
uh, to question among themselves which of them was going to do this thing. And so that easily could have led into, well, no, I'm more faithful. No, I'm more faithful. I love him more. No, I love him more. So that could easily have devolved into, you know, an argument of who's the greatest. Uh, Another possibility is that, you know, they're seated at the Last Supper. And so it could have been an issue of, you know, the seating arrangement. Um, we know from John's gospel that John sat right next to Jesus and that, you know, he was the one who, and it makes a point of saying this in, in his gospel account, he was the one that leaned his head up against the chest of Jesus. He was real close next to Jesus. And you can imagine Peter going, check out John there. You know, he's all, you know, cozying up to Jesus, getting the best seat, you know. So that could have been what set them off. Frankly, we really don't know. Um, I like what Warren Wearsby said, though. He says, when you're focused on promoting yourself, it doesn't take much to start an argument, right? And, and you, we've all experienced this, haven't we? And, and we can't get down. I mean, I call the disciples clowns, and in fact, they are clowns, but we're clowns too, right? And, and so we can have the tendency to have these petty differences. Who's the greatest? We can allow, you know, envy and jealousy and all of these human emotions that really aren't foreign to any of us here, uh, to come in and to really poison what should be a really holy moment. This is what's going down here. Um, so, you know, we're speculating about what, what possibly set them off. What, po- what was it that, that could have been the spark? I think John's gospel provides a really interesting possibility. <clears throat> we, um, Jesus is going to respond to this, by the way, here in, in Luke's gospel. He's going to start talking to them. But this is where the harmony of the Gospels is helpful because (coughs) we see in the other Gospel accounts uh, different camera angles to the same story. And uh, and so different events are are recorded uh, by other guys that aren't recorded here in Luke and vice versa. And so what we know is that as this is going down, some different things happen that that Luke didn't record. Um, And so John's gospel does record what Jesus does. And really, it seems that it precedes what he's going to say to them in verse 25 of Luke chapter 22 and following. Um, John has something that happened just prior to that, and I want to focus on that. Um, And this kind of helps us to go to maybe the motive of their hearts as well. Let me put it on the screen for you. John chapter 13, beginning verse 2. It says, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and and laid aside his garments. He took a towel and he girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Uh, and we know that after that, Peter famously protested, uh, said, you're, gonna wash, you're not going to wash my feet. And that kind of stems from sort of historically um, it, it, for, for a teacher such as Jesus to, uh, to you know, lead his disciples. That teacher would have great authority over his disciples. And yet there was a line that that teacher couldn't cross. And one of those lines is that teacher had no right to demand that his disciples should wash his feet. This was a task that was considered a lowly task. It was customary, um, and, and we'll get into to this a little bit more, but basically, you know, remember, when, you, when you're sitting down to, to, a, to a meal, the table was low. 
Uh, they didn't sit in chairs. They sort of reclined at the table. And you add to that, they, they walk everywhere that, you know, they go in sandals and everything, everywhere's dirt. And so if you're sitting reclined at a table, then basically you're going to be in close proximity to somebody else's smelly, dirty feet, right, while you're eating. Yuck, right? You ever, you ever been on a plane and somebody takes off their shoes and all of a sudden you get, I was sitting in a window seat one time. <coughs> I kid you not, I'm sitting in a window seat and all of a sudden I hear some rustling. I look next to me and there's a bare foot right next to me where my, the guy behind me had like stretched. I'm like, yuck. I'm, I had visions in my mind of taking my hot coffee and just kind of go, oops. You know, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> but in my mind, I did. Um, but at any rate, so, so this is kind of the arrangement here. And... Um, and so, uh, I'm going off a tangent here, but anyway, um, the, the teacher couldn't demand that his disciples would wash his feet. Well, Jesus here, he, he goes even a step for, further for now the teacher to condescend to such a degree that he washes his disciple feet. This is completely unheard of. Now, and, and so Peter, uh, you know, immediately after this, He protests. He's like, oh, you're not going to wash my feet. But we pick it up in verse 12. It says, so when he, Jesus, had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down, he said to them, now remember, he's saying this in the context of their little drama playing out, who's the greatest. He does this action. And now what's he do? He says to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent, who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Right, and so so this here is Jesus, uh, you know, giving this object lesson. Well, I, I told you basically the 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 how it went down that you know when you went to a meal, the the lowest servant of the house typically would wash everybody's feet before the meal because nobody wants to sit down to a meal and and smell somebody's dirty feet. Right, it's just disgusting, and so the lowest servant typically would would wash the person's feet. Um, but for this gathering, remember, it's just Jesus and his 12 disciples. There is no lower servant, right, that's present at, at the house. There is no servants at all, really, there at the house. It's just Jesus and his disciples in this upper room having this last supper. And the text indicates that they ate their meal with dirty feet, right? Undoubtedly, any of these disciples would have been happy to wash Jesus' feet, but there's a catch because whoever girded themselves to wash Jesus' feet would then be obligated to wash the other people's feet as well, right? And that would identify them as being inferior to the other people, not to be the greatest, right? And so nobody's gonna do this, so the result is ain't nobody's feet got washed, because none of them are willing to humble themselves, right? Nobody wants to be perceived as inferior. They all want to be the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. Fine, we're going to eat with dirty feet, because I ain't washing your feet. 
So this is probably a strong possibility of, you know, what, what fed into this argument of who's the greatest. Now, I picture Jesus here just, just watching all this go down. And, and he's like, well, is, is, is everybody just going to be, you know, they're, they're going to be so prideful. They're going to sit and eat, you know, next to somebody's nasty toe jam. They're just going to be there and, and eat, right? And um, Jesus lets this go all the way through dinner until finally he gets up. He lays aside his garments. He girds himself with a towel. He himself washes their feet. Now, Jesus is giving his disciples an object lesson here, right? And Jesus, it says, rose from supper, right? What's he do? What's this object lesson? He rose from supper to serve just as he rose from his throne in heaven to serve. Jesus laid aside his garments to serve just as he laid aside his glory to serve. Jesus took a towel and girded himself to serve just as he took the likeness of man in humility to serve. Jesus poured out water to cleanse his disciples just as he would soon pour out his blood to cleanse mankind. And Jesus sat down again after he served them just as he will soon sit down at the right hand of the Father after serving us. And the point that Jesus is here making to his disciples is that the Christian life is defined by service. The Christian life is defined by service. And to make sure that they get the message, Jesus says this. He says, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, he says, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you... He says, an example that you should do as I have done to you. That word example, here's the idea of it. The idea is it's an image to be mirrored or imitated. That's the idea of that word example. He's given us an image to be mirrored or to be imitated. Now, I was at a pastor's conference this week, and Pastor Don McClure gave a great, a brilliant illustration, and I had this message on my brain. And, uh, and I leaned over to my wife and I said, that's getting ripped off right there, that illustration that he just gave. You're going to hear that on Sunday. Um, and so I give credit where it's due. Pastor John McClure gives this image, but he talked about your mirror at home, right? And what is your mirror designed to do? It's designed to reflect an image, isn't it? And, and he said, you know, you, you think about this, you know, you go and you look at yourself in the mirror um, and, you know, you could try this today. You sneak out, sneak away from your mirror, now you peek back and you see if your, your image is still there reflected in the mirror. And, of course, it won't be reflected in the mirror because you have left. Here's the idea. Um, in order for a mirror to reflect, the object that it's reflecting, it has to be present, right? So for you to reflect Jesus Christ, he's got to be present in your life for you to reflect him. Does that make sense? Isn't that profound, right? <laughs> I'm being facetious. No, but, it, but yes, Jesus has to be present. And here's the point that Jesus is making is to his disciples. He's saying, look, you can either reflect the world and how you operate, or you can reflect me. And so he gives them this object lesson of washing washing their feet. Now, here, Luke continues in verse 25, and this is included. He's washed their feet, but now he's elaborating on what he said. Here's what he says. Verse 25, said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them 
are called benefactors. Jesus here is using three words to describe how the world operates. You've got the word lordship, you've got the word authority, and you have the word benefactor. Now that word lordship, it means to have dominion over. The word authority means to exercise power over. And the word benefactor, basically the idea of that word benefactor is who gets the credit. That's the idea. Okay, so what Jesus is saying is that in the world system, you've got kings and you have appointed leaders of the kings, right? The kings appoint these different leaders to to exercise authority that they give them. So the kings, they have lordship over the people. The appointed leaders, the king who says, I'm going to appoint you as a leader, that leader has authority to exercise power over the people on behalf of the king, right? And... Jesus said that in the world system, it's all about who has the power, who calls the shots, and listen, who gets the credit, right? This is what, this is what he's saying. <clears throat> but he says in verse 26, it's not supposed to be that way among you, he says to the disciples, not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves, For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you, Jesus says, as the one who serves. So he's he's saying here, look, you got to be like the younger. Now, in in the ancient times, um, age carried with it a certain status. And in contrast to that, if you were the younger you didn't have as much status, right? And we kind of still experience this dynamic today. Um, You know, your your younger brother is just a pest, right? I can say that. I don't have a younger brother. But your younger brother doesn't have the same status or the baby of the family doesn't have the same status. My wife is in her 50s. Not not too long ago, she went through a a situation where as a family, they had to make some critical decisions and I watched she, as the baby of her family, was treated like a baby. Here's a wise woman in her 50s. She's a grandmother of almost 10 kids at that, 10 grandkids at that time. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we had eight grandkids at that time. Whatever. She's a wise woman. But I watched her siblings just treat her like she was just, you know, the runt of the litter, the baby of the family. Like, what do you know? You know, and, and so this is just sort of the idea. And... What Jesus says here is an amazing, he says uh, that, that that's the way we're supposed to act. We're supposed to act as the younger. This is how we are to serve. We are to serve humbly with nothing coming, right? That, that is, that's, that's the attitude, that's the idea. Paul, talking to the Philippians, he said much the same thing. He said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. I like the way the New Living Translation paraphrases that verse. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Now, this is the point that Jesus is making to his disciples. He's like, look, I'm humbling myself, right? And that's what the the Bible makes abundantly clear, that Jesus who deserved all glory and honor and praise, humbled himself, came in the likeness of man, 
and became obedient to even suffering death on the cross and being mocked and ridiculed and scorned and persecuted. Why? Because of the joy that was set before him, the love that he had for us. Jesus would humble himself in this way. Listen, in the kingdom of God, the way up is down. And this is for us to understand. Jesus says, look, this is the way you're supposed to live. And and here's the thing. Humility is key. Humility is key. But let me say this. True biblical humility is rare. It's hugely uh, unpopular. It's largely unwelcomed. And frankly, that's true even in the church. It's true even in the church. Why? Because humility requires dying to self. And we don't like that. We don't like dying to ourselves. We're too selfish. James, he says, you know, he talks about what causes fights and quarrels among you. And basically, he goes on to say, don't they come from your selfish desires that battle within you? And what happens is we've got this self-focus. And so for the most part, our world exists for self-help, self-esteem, self-love, self-actualization. It's all about us, right? Let me give you an example of this from from a real-world scenario. Not too long ago, there was a U.S. District Court case in Giles County, Virginia. And what was at issue was the ACLU was suing a local high school um, to have them remove the Ten Commandments from their wall. And so uh, the judge of this case, a guy by the name of Michael Urbanski, he got the idea as he's hearing the case. He goes, okay, so you want the separation of church and state. You don't want God on a, on a public you know, display. And so he says, well, why don't we just remove the first four of the commandments? Because here's the thing, the Ten Commandments, they're divided really into two parts. First four have to do with man's relationship with God. You know, the first commandment, you know, you're going you're gonna to worship one God, right? No other, have no other gods. Second commandment, you're not going to have any idols. Third commandment is that you're going to not take the Lord's name in vain. Fourth commandment is that you're going to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. All of these have to do with a, a Godward orientation of man to, to God, right? The last six have to do with man's relationship to man. You're to honor your father and mother. You're not to murder. You're not to commit adultery. Uh, you're not to steal, and you're not to lie, and you're not to covet. These are, these are all manward-oriented commandments. So this judge's solution is, let's just remove God. That's always the world's solution. Let's just take God out of the equation, right? And so, so this is the idea. Here's the problem with that. The Bible says that our ability to take care of one another, our ability to care for one another, truly, our ability to love one another, it comes because God first loved us. And how did God love us? Jesus gave his life sacrificially. He humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death. And that's his message here to these disciples. You guys, you're stuck on stupid just arguing about who's better and who's greater. He's like, just would you humble yourselves already and just serve each other? Would you just agree uh, just to be, be treated like the little brother or the annoying little sister? Just be that person who just says, what can I do for you? The way up is down. And Jesus was clear to say, look, I've done this for you. Take note. Because if I have done this for you, that's the way you ought to, it's, that's the way you ought to act. Um, Paul said this to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2. He said, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, 
who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. What did Jesus do? He humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Listen, guys, this is is why this principle of serving sacrificially, it's one of the top values that we have as a church. And we articulate that value this way. We say at Reliance Church, we are servants, we are not contributors, or we're not consumers, we are contributors. And, and we are that way, why? Because Jesus himself was a servant. We place a high value on servant-heartedness and being just humbly serving. Because Jesus himself came as a servant, this is Mark 10, 45, right? One of our most popular verses here at this church. If you've been here any length of time, you've heard me, heard me quote this a dozen times at least. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If it's good enough for Jesus to humbly serve, it's good enough for us to humbly serve, right? Not worrying about who gets the credit, not worrying about I'm better than you. It's just about what can I do to serve you? And the Bible says that God expects that from us. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us this. We are his, Jesus' workmanship. It means work of art. It means poem. Uh, in, in, In other words, the idea is that you're very uniquely special in the way that God has created you and the way he's gifted you. And we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, should be in the operative word. Here's what that means. That means that God, not only has he uniquely created you, but he's also uniquely placed you here in this local body of believers. And then he also, from the foundation of the world, has created things that you should be doing as a humble servant that are just, in particular, for you to do, right? There's a uniqueness to you and there's a uniqueness to the work. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Let me expand on this. Go to the right. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. And there in, in Ephesians chapter 4, we read this. Ephesians chapter 4, pick it up in verse 1. Paul is speaking to the church in in Ephesus. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Again, he's writing to those in Ephesus, but this is the Holy Spirit talking to every single one of us. And and he basically says, look, you have a calling on your life. Calling is is not limited to those who are called to be, you know, a, a pastor. So everybody has a calling on their life. And you have to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. This is what he's saying, right? With all lowliness and gentleness, not with the puffed up, I'm great as who's greater. No, lowliness and gentleness with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Why would he say that? <clears throat> because it's hard, right? It's been said church would be a great place if it wasn't for all the people. Um, we have to bear with each other. And you know this. We know this in our own family, don't we? Gee whiz, sometimes I'm really tough to live with. And my wife will just remind me of that occasionally. You're a very tough person to live with, right? So we have to bear with each other in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
Why? Because we make each other mad. We have to humble ourselves. Keep the unity of the Spirit, bond of peace. He says there's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Right? So he's making this point. Look, it's, it's, there's, there's one person who's great. There's one person who's awesome. There's one person who we worship, and there's a a unity to the Godhead, but he goes on quickly to say, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he laid captivity captive and gave gifts uh, to men. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers... For what? Verse 12, the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Here's his point. Look, there's one church, there's one God, but we all together individually, we got gifts, we got talents, we're supposed to, as one member, come together with all the other members in unity as one body, and then God moves and works in that body. And so what's he do? He raises up pastors and elders. And what's our job? Our job is to equip you, right? Verse 12, the saints for what? For the work of ministry and for the edifying, that's just a $10 Christian word, which means to build up, right? Your job is to be equipped to, to do the good works and to build up the body of Christ. And this is God's design. This is his plan. Till what? Verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. This is the whole goal. We want to be unified and we want to know the Lord more. To be a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful uh, plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom, listen, here's a summary, get it, the whole body, you can just write your name in there as a member of this body, the whole body joined and knit together by, say it with me, what every joint supplies, okay? That means that you've got something to contribute to the body, so critically important, according to the effective working by which every part does it share, okay, my family, I tell my kids when they were young and at home, they got kids of their own now. They got their own houses. But when my kids were young, I used to tell them, look, your mom is not your maid, okay? You're not King Farouk. You don't get to just blow in here and act any way you want and get weighted on hand and foot and then bail and leave it all to your mom. What? You got to do your share as a member of this family. That's his point here. Every part has to do its share, right? He says... um, according to the effective working by which part does it share, causes what? Growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Causes growth and building up. This is the whole idea. And what does it take? It takes us humbling ourselves and say, Jesus came to suffer and to serve, and that's my role. I will just serve my Lord with, 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 a, with a faithful heart. What Paul says is this, that Jesus, rather than being a consumer, he came as a servant. Right? And having served us so thoroughly and wonderfully, we now have a duty to serve. And even though we're uniquely created and gifted with individual talents, those are to be added to the larger whole. Now, in Mark's gospel, we read about Jesus sending the disciples out two by two. And it was a remarkable thing. And they came back pumped 
with how they were able to use their spiritual gifts and all and all the works that God had done through them. And something else that becomes evident as you, as you read through the account, they were exhausted. Now, can I just get a brief show of hands as an example? How many of you served at VBS? Just a show of hands here. Okay, at the end of the day, were you exhausted? Yeah, right? It was just, I, I got an appointment with my pillow. Like, don't get in my way. I mean, you're exhausted. But what else are you? You're thrilled. You're excited. You want to talk. You want to share about everything that God did, right? But you're also exhausted. This is what happens in Mark's gospel. These guys come back. They're pumped. They're talking about it. But Jesus sees they're exhausted. So he says, hey, I'm going to take you away. We're going to go across the, the lake. We're going to go to a deserted place. We're going to get some rest. You guys have heard me teach on this before, right? What happens? They go across the lake. And everybody who they went to leave to go get some rest from, they all ran around the edge of the lake, and there they are at the other side waiting for them when they come pulling up, you know? So what about Bob? Dr. Leo Marvin! Dr. Leo, here they are. And these disciples, you know, they're like, you again, you know? So Jesus, he gets out of the boat, and what's he do? He loves them. He sees them as sheep, not having a shepherd. He has compassion on them, and so he ministers all day. Now, you know the disciples are sitting there going, uh, we were promised a retreat, <laughs> some rest, you know. And so then what happens is that they come to Jesus at the end of it and they say, it says, when the day was now far spent, I'm picking it up in the middle of uh, Mark 6 and verse 35. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and they said, this is a deserted place and already the hour is late. And what do they do? What's their answer? Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. Don't you like how they couch it in spiritual terms? Oh, we're really cared about those people. Send them away, you know? And I think that just sort of gets to their heart. They're like, these people are sucking me dry. I just need a break right now. But what happens, Jesus answers, verse 37, and he said to them, you give them something to eat. And of course, you guys know what happens, right? There's a protest, like, what the heck? How are we going to feed them something, give these people something to eat? And Jesus takes some little kid's lunch, and he feeds 5,000 people with it. It's just this amazing thing. And there's a huge lesson for us as we just contemplate that, that, that service, listen, it's sacrificial. You know, a lot of times, people, you know, when, when, when serving the Lord doesn't conveniently fit into our schedule, when it causes some sort of a pain or some sort of a, when there's some sort of sacrificial element to it, people will go, oh, wait a minute. If it's difficult or if it's inconvenient, this isn't from God. No, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. We see that serving is sacrificial. We see that sometimes it's painful. We have this example in, in Mark chapter 6. The disciples are exhausted. They promised to retreat. Jesus says, you feed them. There's more work to do. Humble yourselves. Go do this. We see in Luke chapter 5, you know, Peter, he'd worked all night. He was tired. But Jesus got in his boat and said, I need your boat. I need you to put out a little from the shore so I can teach all these people, right? And then before you know it, he's got him fishing again and, and all. And, but it's God calling Peter into, into a lifelong dis- discipleship relationship with him. And in both of these instances, these stories, the Matthew 6, the hey, you feed them moment, and the Luke chapter 5, God getting into Peter's boat and, and doing his work there, and you guys know what ended up happening. After he preached to the multitudes, he goes out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. Peter kind of hymns and haws, but does it. And then all of a sudden, there's this huge miracle. And that's my point. In both instances, as these guys humbly serve the Lord, what happened was that the servants are the ones that saw the miracle. 
The servant saw the miracle, God doing this incredible work. But listen, it required sacrificial participation. It required a humility of heart. Let me ask you, is that you? Is that you? Are you, are, are you in a place where, man, you, you go, man, I, I'm willing, you know, to humbly serve the Lord. I remember when I was planting this church, it was one of the most difficult times in my life. And, um, and there was, it was, you know, I had stepped out in faith. I was like Cortez. I'd burned all my ships. And, and I was like, I, I, I was thinking, if, if God doesn't show up, I'm sunk. You know, that's why we named the church Reliance Church. I'm like, I'm hanging on to you, God. If you don't show up, I'm going to be the biggest fool in, in, in this whole valley because I've laid it all on the line. I'm telling you, I went through such a, a crisis of faith through the midst of this, and it was so difficult. I used to go to bed every night begging God to kill me, and I meant it. I wasn't suicidal, but I was hoping God was homicidal. I was like, look, God... Um, I've got life insurance, Brenda will be fine, like just kill me, please don't let me wake up tomorrow, I meant it, I was like in that place, and, and God was just ringing me out, now, now there's a whole story to that, and basically God was breaking me of my pride, uh, which is a lifelong work, but, but he was doing a breaking and a, and a humbling in my life, but listen, here's the thing, I am so glad, what if we had tapped out, I, I think to everything God's doing. You know, we're sending out missionaries and we're, we're, we're planting churches and I think about literally thousands of people that have made professions of faith in Christ over the years at, you know, on our Sunday services and VBS and all these things. And I think, man, what if I'd have tapped out, right? And the issue is, is that God has an incredible work that he wants to do in you, an incredible work that he wants to do through you. But listen, it takes humility. You can't be puffed up. Who's the greatest? You can't, you know, you know who's a servant by how they act when you start treating them like one. And sometimes you get treated like a servant and you go, well, forget this. Well, you got to ask yourself, who are you serving? You know, if you're looking for thank yous and for pats on the back, I, I would just challenge you just to say, who are you doing it for? Because really, we should be performing for an audience of one, the Lord God Almighty. And God, you came as a servant, you suffered, you died, and you laid your life down, you gave your life as a ransom for many. Can't I do that? Come not to be served, but to serve? Absolutely, I think we can. See, it's not about the stuff, it's not about pursuing the American dream, it's not about who gets the credit, it's about making our lives count. I like what J.A. Hall said. He said, many of us develop our sense of identity from our stuff. We begin to think that we are our home, our car, uh, our clothes, our job. We're our hobbies, our whatever. He says, but what happens to our identity if those things are suddenly taken away? Does our identity, our sense of who we are go with them? I think not. Stuff is just stuff. It has no meaning except for the meaning we attach to it. You can never find meaning among the meaningless, yet many of us spend entire lifetimes trying to do just that. Why do I share that quote? Because the thing is, is that we are called to suffer, to serve, and a lot of us, we get caught up in the stuff. And in the pursuit of things, quite frankly, that are never going to bring you happiness. And at the end of the day, you can't take it with you. I've never seen a a U-Haul behind a hearse, right? And and, and it's all going to burn. 
And so life is about making your life count, and it's about faithfulness. And you can't buy it, and you can't microwave it, and you're never going to find it fighting to be the greatest. That's the idea. Jesus said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And look, we're going to close right this moment. Go back to Luke chapter 22. Look what Jesus says along these lines. He says, you are those, verse 28, who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my Father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Listen, this is the Lord's promise to these disciples. He says, look, you've been with me. You guys have been faithful and you're going to be rewarded. See, being a servant doesn't mean that we will be unrewarded. Jesus doesn't say, humble yourselves, suck it up and serve and, and, you know, and, and thank you very much. No, he says, look, we're in this together. That's the idea. That's the attitude. We're working for a larger purpose, and Jesus promises us, listen, there's going to be a reward at the end. For these disciples, he says, look, you're going to have special status in the kingdom of God. And and they're going to sit on thrones. They're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. If you were with us when we went through Revelation 21, we see that the names of these disciples are written on the foundation of the new Jerusalem. There is profound reward. And God promises you and I a special reward as well. The, The New Testament is filled with the promises of God. One of them, Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is our life appears, then what? You also will appear with him in glory. Listen, we're going to be glorified together with Jesus Christ. There is a reward waiting at the end. And so here's what we, I leave you with. Taking a walk with, what kind of a servant are you? Let me put some questions up on the screen. We'll put these on, up at the end of the service as well. Let me, let, me, let me ask you, write these questions down and take a prayerful walk with them this week by way of application. Maybe discuss them in your community groups. Question number one, do you serve the Lord and his people? Question number two, If your answer to that is yes, then how exactly do you serve the Lord and his people? And maybe some sub-questions with that. Is your service regular? Is your service of the Lord sacrificial? And listen, is your service to the Lord motivated by selfish ambition or self-promotion? And don't just answer that. We grade ourselves on a curb. Hold it in open hand and ask God. Check my heart. Let me tell you the... the, um, I think it's called the Pareti Principle. 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the pe- people do 80% of the giving. I wish I could say it's not the same way here in Reliance Church. It absolutely is. 80% of you listening to this message don't give to this church and you don't serve at this church. Here's my challenge to you. That, if that makes you mad and you say, I was looking for a place when I came here. I'm going to go find another church. Can you give at that other church? Can you serve at that other church? Because God's prepared a work that he wants you to walk in. And we're in this together, guys. We're in this together.